0: Hi, I'm Andalisi. Welcome to episode 15 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear my conversation with NPR political correspondent Don Gagne that was recorded at the Detroit Historical Museum in September of 2019, in which we talk about his time working at WDET in Detroit and making the move to Washington, D.C. to cover the White House. Let's talk about the, how John Prine played such a
1: critical role in your, where you are today. So I assume there are some John Prine fans in, 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 this, in this room. So before I came to WDET, I did three years in commercial radio in my hometown in Monroe, Michigan. Tiny, tiny little hometown station. The only time we knew people were listening was when the high school football game was on. You know, it was, one, it was one of those stations, but it was a good place to learn. And when I worked there, I somehow like finagled an interview with John Prine. I went and saw him after a show in Ann Arbor and did a little 10-minute interview with him. And it wasn't the kind of station that was going to air a John Prine interview, but I just did it because I felt like doing it to see if it was possible to get an interview with John Prine. And he was very nice, and he said to me at the time, you know, not many. I don't get interviewed on the radio much. You know, he said it in that John Prine voice. And um, anyway, nothing came of it except that it was this thrill for me. Four or five years later, John Prine, after kind of a low point in his career, was coming back to town. He was going to do a show in Ann Arbor. And I thought, I'm going to see if I can sit down and interview him again. And so I called his manager up. And they remembered me somehow, inexplicably. And I did an interview with him. But I was just, I was teaching at that point in my life. I was out of radio. Uh, I was... What were you teaching? uh, I was teaching, I did a stint at the Spex Howard School. I was teaching there. I was also teaching at Oakland University. Some radio and television news writing classes. Right. And I was, uh, I cobbled together a few other community colleges. So I was Mm -hmm. like a freelance adjunct. Teacher, you know? So I knew there wasn't a ton of future in that, at least not the way I was doing it. And I was getting ready to go to grad school. And I was, you know, I was going to apply to Northwestern and I was going to like make that the next step of my career. But John Prine was coming to town. I thought, I'm going to call him up. But first, I called my favorite radio station, which was WDET. And Judy Donlin used to host a folk show. on Saturdays Great Lakes Almanac if anybody remembers that show and I said hey Judy you don't know me but uh I'm so and so and I might have an interview next week with John Prine when he comes to town and if I did like produce something like a little half hour thing with him uh would it would you be interested in maybe hearing it or airing it and Judy bless her heart without missing a beat said sure We'd be happy to do that.
0: That's public radio for you. That's public radio for you.
1: That's public radio. It
0: doesn't happen everywhere.
1: So I interviewed John Prine, and I built, and he couldn't have been nicer, and I built this little half-hour documentary, you know, mimicking NPR, an arts piece, and I brought it to Judy, and she aired it, right? And then, lo and behold, sheer coincidence, there was an opening at DET, like, four or five months later, uh, and I applied, and that tape that had already aired on WDET, my interview with John Prine was my audition tape, and I got the job. So... So great. I, owed, I owe, owe, yeah. owe John Prine, yeah.
0: What was the job? We uh, weren't the anchor of Morning Edition right away. They,
1: I got hired you, to be the anchor of Morning Edition.
0: And then you I were did, a reporter as well.
1: And I was a reporter. So my hours mm-hmm. were, Morning Edition back then started at 6 a.m., a much more civilized hour than the current five a.m. start, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'd get there about four thirty or five in the morning, and and so I would anchor Morning Edition from six a.m. to ten. So I not only did the newscast at the top of every hour after the NPR newscast, I would do literally I would do traffic and weather. You know every. 10 minutes throughout the hour and all those breaks and read community service announcements and PSAs. But I was tethered to that board in that studio for, uh, for four hours every day. Can I say what I got paid? Yeah. Is that okay? So, uh, I mean, DET was a struggling station then, right? So I was so excited. It was my first major market radio job. I was gonna be anchoring the news in a top then six market, right? When they, when they hired me, they offered me the job. I was through the roof, and then they told me it paid six dollars and twenty-five cents an hour and no benefits. And no benefits. So I like took a deep breath and you know, I went home and I think we talked about it. And I remember calling my 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 brother Dale and talking about it. And it was like, You got a, you got a job offer in public radio the network you listen to, the station you listen to, I was just, I took it, you know, and, and I was never gonna not take it, uh, but, I, but, I, but it was kind of like that, oh, you yeah. know, but because, because I was making so little money, I had this incentive to stick around after my shift ended, so I'd be on the air until 10, I didn't get off work until one, I would just stick around till five or six or seven o'clock every day, and I would freelance stories to NPR because I'd pick up an extra 25 bucks for a new spot or an extra 250 bucks for a long story about something that I was able to pitch. And it started out very, very, very slowly. Right. But uh, but by the end of that first year, I was almost making as much freelancing for NPR in those extra hours after my shift wow. than I was actually doing my shifts. So that was so. So I not only kind of got my first job in public radio, I established a relationship with NPR NPR in those years.
0: So when we moved to 6001, you moved with us, we Mm -hmm. all went together, and you were still anchoring, right?
1: No, I only anchored for one year. I anchored for one year, and then by the time we moved to 6001, I was no longer a WDET employee. Right. Uh, Michigan Public Radio, based in Lansing, was expanding their operations and adding a Detroit bureau, a Detroit reporter. So I applied for that, I got that job, and I still worked out of WDET, I didn't even change my desks, I still had a corner of the newsroom, right. uh, but now I was working for Michigan Public Radio. And
0: that was some corner. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing like it.
1: <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to say I was a hoarder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I collected a lot of things and kept them in my office because you never know what you're going to need to refer back to <laughs> on deadline <laughs> honest I,
0: <laughs> we would all you know because all of us you know, there were, you know we had a pretty good staff at that time and you know, Don was just part. Of, it was like he was just working at DET. I mean, that's a, yeah, almost the I, way. Yeah, I, all... I
1: wasn't technically. I wasn't a DET employee, but I thought of myself as and we did too. part of your family, and yeah. I wasn't going to let go of that for anything because yeah. that was fun.
0: And so then NPR comes calling. You didn't call them; they called you.
1: Right. So, so by the, by the time the year 2000 rolled around, I was officially an NPR employee. I started working for NPR exclusively in the Like 93 or 94, something like that. But still at my same desk at WDET. So, you know, a lot of NPR reporters who work around the country outside of Washington, they just set up a studio in their house. And you can do that. And you can work out of your house and this and that. And I could have done that, but I wanted to work out of WDET's newsroom. So I kept doing that. But when, because I'd covered so many, you know, UAW strikes and got to know the Teamsters, and those guys were involved in politics in a big way every single election year. Right. I started over the years to gradually get sucked into NPR's political coverage every two years. Right. Uh, Michigan is, obviously, and and was and has been a, an important battleground state in presidential elections but also in congressional elections. Right. So, um I started doing a lot of politics for NPR, but based in Michigan and rooted in my coverage of labor unions. And then out of the blue in, I think it was October of 2000, I get a call from Ron Elving, who's still at NPR. You guys, I'm sure you know Ron's work. Uh, I barely knew him, but he was the political editor then. And he says, I got a question for you. You ever thought of moving to Washington? I didn't know what he was, what he was getting at. Right. So, so, but, but, I had been asked about uh, applying for the occasional Washington job at NPR a handful of times, and uh, you know, I, I, I always had the same answer. You know, it's like I, I got a great beat. Uh, I'm on the air all the time. I already work for NPR. I got uh, two sets of grandparents within 30 minutes of my kids. Why would I screw that up? And then. He said, we think we want you to cover the White House. And I go home, and <laughs> Lori can tell something's up, all right? And so I tell her, NPR wants me to cover the White House, and I didn't mean to, like, suck you into this here, but so this, this is a quote. This is Lori's reaction when I said, NPR wants me to cover the White House. Direct quote. She said, I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> and then my response, this also is a direct quote, was, "But in a good way." <laughs> you know? So it took us a couple. It took us a couple of weeks to decide, but we, you know, what we decided, obviously. So, obviously. And then a new adventure began.
0: My real goal tonight is to let you give you an inside look or pull back the curtain on what it's like to do the job that Don does. Um, because it is really fascinating when you think about how he functions as a journalist. And so that is really going to be the crux of of what we talk Mm -hmm. about, because I don't know what it's like to be on Air Force One, but he does. (laughs) And so when you got to Washington, D.C., and you started covering the White House, who was in
1: office? Uh, It was the first days of, well, my first day at the White House was George W. Bush's first day at the White House as president. So I started with that president with that president when he started. So when when I had been offered the job, you know, it was still October. The election hadn't happened yet. So I said yes before I knew who I would be covering. And not that that would have, you know, made any difference. I mean, you cover who you cover and we don't get to pick who we cover. That's all, I guess, neither here nor there. But, But I didn't know who I was going to be covering. And then that crazy 2000 election recount Right. So I hadn't even started my job yet. I hadn't even walked through the gates of the White House yet. And I'm covering what was not just the biggest story of the year, what felt like then the biggest story any of us was going to cover in our entire Lives that that recount that went on. I mean, you guys remember it. Weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And next thing you know, I mean, I you know, I, I, election night that year, I was at the Renaissance Center, whichever direction it is, and I was uh, covering the Michigan victory party. And my instructions were: the next day, once we knew who the president elect was, that's where I was going to go, and that's where I was going to start my job. But I was up all night at the Ren and finally at like seven or eight in the morning when we still didn't know who had won, they said, uh, just go to Nashville, that's where Gore is. They didn't send me there because we thought he was going to win, we didn't, we didn't know, we had no idea, but it was an easy place for me to get to quickly. and our Gore reporter, a guy named Anthony Brooks, who still does work for us, was like practically dead. He was so tired (laughs) from like the last week of the campaign and then all that, so I went there to help him out. So without even coming home on election night, I was in Nashville, then I was there for two days, and then I went down to West Palm Beach, Florida, and again, still without coming home after saying goodbye on election day morning, next thing you know, I'm standing in the heat of West Palm Beach, Florida, in the same clothes, mind you, right? <laughs> uh, I stopped at an old Navy and bought some underwear and socks, <laughs> you know, on the way. But, and I'm looking at those people hold those chads up to the light, trying to figure out who the next president of the United States was gonna be. And you're thinking, what happened to my life? <laughs> what what have I gotten myself into here? That's how it began. That's how wow. it began. Yeah. So when things settled
0: down and we knew who the next president was, you're going to cover the White House. Mm-hmm. So you get up in the morning and you're going to work. Lori's there, right? She moved with you. Yep.
1: Yep. <laughs> she didn't. I was there a few weeks before she arrived, but yeah, she so. was a little ill. <laughs> a little, yes. <laughs> So you drive to the White House? There are different kinds of badges to get into the White House. (laughs) There are the ones that come with access to parking places, and then there are the ones that we get as reporters, (laughs) right? I got access to a little four-foot by five-foot you know, room in the basement of the White House. (laughs) But you park at one of those places near the White House. And sometimes I'd take mass transit. But a lot of times, since I had no idea how long my day was going to be, what time I'd finally get out of there, it was just easier to have a car and park it in one of those garages in downtown D.C. So then you walk a couple of blocks to the White House and you go through the security gate and there are the uniformed Secret Service officers there who just look like regular cops. They're not the guys with the suits and the earpiece. They're just the uniform division of the Secret Service. They have, you know, white police-style shirts, and they're wearing a holster with a gun and a you know, policeman's hat and all that. But they're, they are Secret Service, and they're the ones who guard the perimeter of, of the, the White House, and you go through there every day, and you see the exact same guys every day. And there was a guy from Frankenmuth who worked for the Secret (laughs) Service. And I came through one day wearing my tiger hat, as I would on occasion. And he said, "Uh, what's with the hat? I said, oh, I'm a Tiger fan, and he made some reference to, uh, to Al Kaline or to Alan Trammell or something, and we became, like, fast friends from that day forward because he was a guy from Michigan who was transplanted, transplanted to Washington, D.C., and was thrilled to have somebody he could have a 30-second conversation about the Tigers with every single morning on the way <laughs> in. So, that, I mean, that's the side of the White House that you just would never anticipate. And that was kind of one of the early things that kind of gave me comfort as I was adjusting to this weird new beat.
0: So how many reporters are there, like show up there to
1: work out of the White House typically? So it's funny, I've never really like added it up, but it's probably about 100.
0: So there's 100 of you in there.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: All working away.
1: All working away. And the thing that was kind of so jarring to me at first was when I I was in Detroit covering labor unions for NPR and and other stories, whenever I went to a story, I was almost always the only national reporter there. There'd be a bunch of local reporters, you know, and, know, and the news and free press would be there, but I was more often than not the only national reporter there. And as such, I kinda had the story to myself in terms of national media. And there were a lot of stories I was covering because I just dreamt up the story that I was going to cover and sold it to an editor that I'd be the only reporter on it, period. And I'd just be kind of figuring out who to talk to and where to go and all that. Right. And, and I could do my work accordingly. Suddenly I'm at the White House and there's a hundred reporters all in the same area that's about the size of where we are right now. And guess what? Every one of us is trying to get access to about the same 12 people at the White House, and we're all covering the same guy, the President of the United States. So it took my, you know, pyramid and inverted it, and to use a journalistic term, I guess, right? Um, so that was like the first rude awakening. So, so in you know, in the early days, you'd do your story. And, you know, I'm new on the beat, and I'm new in Washington, and I don't even know where the buildings are yet. (laughs) And it's like in the very early days, you kind of take some validation when your story looks a lot like the story that was on the front page of the New York Times, or was on the front page of the Washington Post. And it's kind of like, okay, yeah, that's a good reporter, and they kind of saw what I did, and kind of totally separately, we kind of did the same story, and that's good. That means I got it right. But as time passes, it's like you, you, you get to a point where you hate it when you've got the same story <laughs> as them. And you want to have like your, your angle on it or your focus or your insight that's different from right. theirs. And that's when you start to feel like, okay, I think I'm getting the hang of this now. I can kind of, I can own this and I can make decisions on my own and I don't have to be validated by anybody as long as I can get this past my editor, Ron Elving. <laughs> you know, so...
0: Coming up, Don Gagne and I talk about the daily press briefings at the White House, what it's like on Air Force One, and covering President Donald Trump. As newsrooms across the country close their doors, independent and unbiased journalism is more crucial than ever. We rely on you, just like you rely on us. This spring fundraiser, join us in protecting public media. Your support keeps us thriving. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in our mobile app. I'm Mandalisi. Here's a conclusion of my conversation with NPR political correspondent Don Gagne. When there would be the daily press briefing, which there used to be, mm-hmm. a daily press briefing.
1: Remember those? Remember those? That's not an editorial comment, by the way. That's just to remember those. <laughs> okay. All of you knew that there was going to be a
0: press briefing. Now, that room looks pretty small, so not everybody yeah. gets in there. So how, how is it determined who gets to there's
1: you, there's, have access? Um, uh, there are, are theater-style seats in the Brady press briefing room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and The briefing room is named after James Brady, who was wounded when he was with President Reagan during that assassination attempt. So, uh, And he was a much beloved press secretary, not just by those who worked with him in the White House, the White House staff, but reporters who dealt with him. He was just, a, I, I, I didn't deal with him. I wasn't there yet, but by all accounts, he was just a straight shooter and a sweetheart of a guy and wanted to know about your family and where your kids were going to school and how you were adjusting to life in Washington. He was just a, a decent human being. Anyway. So it's that press room, and there are theater style seats, and there are, God, I haven't been in there in so long, because I haven't been covering the White House lately. There's seven seats across in each row, and then I think there are nine rows. So that gets us to 63 seats. And in the first six rows, each seat has a little brass nameplate on it. And that nameplate has the name of a news organization. And if you're there that day, that's your seat. Now, if you're there for CBS News, CBS might have six people cover in the White House. They might have 11 people there, depending on the day. There's one CBS News seat, and they decide who gets it, and it's always their lead correspondent, right. or mostly their lead correspondent. Um, if you're not there that day, or if you're on deadline and you're not upstairs in the briefing while the briefing's going on, your seat's vacant. It's there for like anybody who doesn't have a name tag a seat plate, right. to grab it. And at that point, it's like first come, first serve, because it's vacant. So you got all these news organizations that have somebody there, but they don't have a seat because of audience size or status or they're too new or whatever it is. So they're all lurking, waiting for the briefing to start so they can dive in. <laughs> and then And then you get off your deadline, and you come up, and somebody's in your seat, and you just, you kick them out, you kick them out of your seat, because <laughs> no. it's got National Public Radio on it, it's mine, you know, so that, so that's kind of the ritual there, and there would always be like a midday briefing, the, the main on-camera briefing that you guys have seen a million times, though not recently, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, out, out of the White House briefing room, and it was usually anywhere between, you know, 12.30 and 2 p.m., and if it was any later than 2 p.m., we all got ticked off because it was getting too close to our afternoon deadlines. you know. So we tried to push and have them not have it go too late. But there would also be a morning briefing in that same briefing room.
0: By the same press secretary? By the same
1: press secretary. And that one was called the gaggle. And it's been named the gaggle like forever. And I think it probably tells you what the White House thinks of the reporters who follow them because that morning briefing is called the gaggle, uh, and it has been, uh, you know, thus forever. And that would be just a 15-minute briefing. It would be on the record, but no cameras and no audio, and it would be a very different kind of a briefing because it wasn't on television. And it and it was it was usually early in the morning. You know, maybe it was 8:45 or. 8.15, depending on the day, but you would find out so much in that gaggle that you often didn't find out in the afternoon televised one, just because it was more informal and more uh, news-focused.
0: So know. was the press secretary a little more relaxed in,
1: yes. it, in yes. that
0: situation That's than right. when they're on camera? And... That's right.
1: Yeah, they, uh, they didn't have to like weigh every word. They weren't getting asked the same question multiple times by you know each of the TV networks, because each of the TV network correspondents needs not just the answer— but they need videotape of themselves asking the question, so they can put that, you know, into. Oh, right. So you get a lot of repetition in the televised one. How Not ma- that that's all bad. I mean, sometimes there's value in asking the same damn question, you know, over and over because the answer begins to change <laughs> or fall apart at some point or whatever. So
0: how many press secretaries did President Bush have?
1: That's a uh, let's see. He had Ari Fleischer, uh, Scott McClellan. And Scott ended up having problems with the White House because he felt he was lied to during the whole Valerie Plame uh, episode. I don't know if you remember that, when uh, uh, she was working as a U.S. spy and she was outed uh, by somebody on the White House staff. And McClellan felt like he was sent out there to say things that weren't true. And he left over it. I mean, that's 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 what the you know that was the Bush White House, and then he was replaced by Tony Snow, oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, who had been hired from Fox News, uh, and and he'd also done a lot of editorial, newspaper editorial writing. I think he wrote editorials for the Detroit News for a while. Tony mm-hmm. Snow, and Tony Snow was a gentleman and a good guy, and he had a recurrence of cancer that right. he'd had years earlier, and died while he was on sick leave from the job. And then he was replaced by Dana Perino, mm-hmm. who's these days on Fox News. So I think that's all of them.
0: Did, would, would reporters be able to talk with these press secretaries directly, or would they not want to have any special treatment of any particular reporter? Yeah. Or was there sort of an unwritten rule that you couldn't reach out to them directly?
1: So, no, uh, the, the point is that they are there for you to reach out directly to. And they're your point of contact.
0: And were they accessible? And
1: they were, some were more accessible accessible than others, right? And some knew more than others. Mm-hmm. Like some of the ones that would be most accessible weren't necessarily plugged in on the things you wanted to know about. Oh, I see. And I guess maybe that's why they were more accessible, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and, and, and then sometimes, you know, they, uh, you knew they were in the meeting and you'd reach out to them and they'd be happy to take your call. Yeah. But they just they just wouldn't give you much. So, they, I mean, it's always a dance, and each one is as different as, you know, uh, one person's personality is to the next, one person's view of the job is to the next. Um, but the thing that was constant through the eight years of the Bush White House that I covered, and then I was in the Obama White House for the first two years, is that news briefing happened like it was a daily ritual, and you could count on it. I mean, you couldn't set your watch by it, unfortunately, because you didn't know when it was gonna happen on any given day, but it was gonna happen. It was gonna happen, and the only reason it wouldn't happen is if the president himself did a press conference that day. So that's what's all kind of changed with the current administration. Now it just doesn't happen.
0: So the fact that it doesn't happen today, so you're not covering the White House
1: Right. Well, I'm, not, I'm not so, there on a daily basis. But you
0: know bit. what those reporters have to deal with. So now they have yeah. no access to a press secretary telling them anything. So how do they then do their job effectively? I will say that yeah. it seems like many reporters are doing a phenomenal job. Mm-hmm. Um, and they find the story and they get people to talk to them. So now they, yeah. they don't even deal with a press secretary. Right. And then they start to find the story, and they find people who will talk. Is right. that how it goes now? so
1: your your relationship with the press secretary isn't to have them give you big news. Mm-hmm. you know your relationship with them is to try to get them to clarify the president's thinking on this or answer questions about kind of gaps in the <laughs> policy that you notice, you know or whatever i mean that's and um even uh, like all through the all through the the Bush and Obama years, you could always just you know walk up to the West Wing and go down the little, you know, hallway, the lower press area, they called it. uh, And there's the press secretary's office. And if the door is open, you can just walk in. And if they're there, you can just say, hey, I got a question about something. And you can have the conversation. And they'll either answer you or not. But the door tended to be open. If it was closed, then you'd have to, you know, go to the person who's seated outside the office Mm -hmm. and, you know, the press secretary is one of their deputies or assistants and put your request in and hope that they call you back. And, you know, more often than not, they would. Uh, it doesn't mean you're going to get a satisfactory answer. You're always going to get the company line. Right. Uh, sometimes they'd say, let's go on background on this, or I can tell you this, but it's off the record and you'll have to confirm it somewhere else. You get little things like that, but you don't really get blockbusters from the press secretary. But the thing that you know, some of the great news coverage you're talking about with the current administration, mm-hmm. uh, the thing that those reporters are doing this was always happening during those previous presidents, but it's more critical than ever now because there's so much stonewalling that goes on kind of even beyond the norm. You know? The stonewalling is the norm, let's let's be clear. But there's like there, there's much more of kind of a, a fog machine going now. So you're always working other contacts that you've made in the White House, and maybe it's somebody you got to know while covering the campaign, maybe it's somebody you got to know because you used to cover commerce and they came from commerce, or you used to cover the FBI and they came from the FBI. I mean, you have relationships, and it's a town that's built on relationships, and the long-term relationships sometimes pay dividends when suddenly that person is the deputy chief of staff to the president, and they have known you for years, and they trust you, so they're happy to have a conversation with you. So that stuff still goes on, and that's where you're seeing a lot of the great reporting.
0: Have there been stories in the last three years, say, that you have seen come out and be blown away by the reporting that was done at at the story they were able to find?
1: Yes, yeah. And uh, I'm hard-pressed to come up with one because there have been a lot of them. There have been a lot of them. And the the game that then always ensues... uh, and, and a lot of consumers of, of news do the same thing, is trying to figure out who their source is. Where do they get this? What does, what, does this quote sound like somebody I know who said something a certain way that has a little quirk of their, you know, their vocal tick or, 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 or whatever it is. So you're looking at the stories that way. You know, I look at, uh, you know, I look at some of the reporting that, like my colleague Kerry Johnson did covering uh, the Mueller investigation and the Mueller report, and we share a cubicle. And I would listen to her working her sources all day, and every day I was like astounded that she was able to root this out and get it, you know, ahead of the New York Times or ahead of the Post. Uh, organizations that I think have been doing a great job covering uh, covering this administration, but that she was doing it basically by herself and still managing to hold her own and get her share. Of scoops, but you know, to, to maybe answer your question, still a little bit generally, any of these stories that reveals kind of a big behind the scenes tick tock of events that leads up to one of those kind of blockbuster stories that maybe left us all kind of slack-jawed, I'm always just immensely impressed, and and. Especially with this White House, you know, because you look and it's, it's quote after quote after quote that might not be attributed to someone by name, but is it attributed to senior White House officials. So that means there's somebody in that building who's talking to them. And...
0: But it seems like the whole time a lot of people have been talking. Like, yes, yes. Like, I mean, a lot of people have had to tell a lot of things that are going on because these stories are... Very in-depth, and then you have reporters who have to protect their sources, of course, or they'll right. never talk again, right? Right. And so that's gotta be tricky um, in this particular climate.
1: And and, it's, and it is, but it is still the hardest thing, and then once you find somebody who will talk, just getting it from them isn't enough. It's not enough for us, and I know it's not enough for you know most other legitimate news organizations. You then have to find someone else who will give you their version of the story or who will corroborate that version of the story. It's, we, we never go on the air with, with just one source on anything unless the decision to, to use a one source story has been vetted all the way up to the highest levels of our company.
0: You end up on Air Force One. And Mm -hmm. so I said to Don uh, last night, I said, so what is that like? It's a flying city or something. I mean, (laughs) where... So you guys, the president goes first. You guys all wait until the president boards the plane.
1: Right. So so the experience of flying Air Force One begins well before you board the plane, right? You go out to Andrews Air Force Base. Uh, I think it's changed its name now, but I'll just stick with that because that's what it was when I was on the beat all the time. And uh, you go through like a normal airport metal detector, except it's Air Force personnel staffing the, you know, the, the checkpoint. But then you get inside and you're in like a very small terminal uh, that's right next to the tarmac. And now, all of your bags are there, and you have to line them up in a long line. And the same thing happens every day in whatever hotel room you're in on the campaign trail. Like at the, at the Fairfield Inn or the Sheraton or whatever, the whole press corps that's traveling with the president gathers, and all your bags are lined up, and they bring dogs in. And the dogs just crawl all over the bags, you know, sniffing, even though we've all already gone through security. And then once you're clear, it's usually about 45 minutes before the president arrives. And the president arrives by chopper from the White House uh, or by motorcade if they're coming from a hotel, if if you're on the road. But uh, about 45 minutes before the president arrives, they tell us to head out to the plane. And you walk a half a mile across a tarmac to Air Force One. So you've got this gorgeous blue and white and silver Plane a 747 with the United States of America, you know, painted on the side, and it looks it looks just like the movies. It does <laughs> look just like the movies, you know. Um, the movies work hard to get this <laughs> look and to make it. So you walk across this long tarmac, lugging your gear and lugging your bags to this 747, and it doesn't matter how many times you fly on that plane, it never gets old walking across a tarmac to that airplane, right? So you get out there and then uh, you go up and they check you off, there's another security check and you get on the plane. The press cabin is all the way in the back of the plane. Uh, Well, behind us is the galley with the cooks, right? Uh, But then right in front of that is the press cabin. Uh, So you drop your gear off. There, nobody handles your bags for you. It's like it's yours and you're you're lugging all your equipment that you're gonna need to do radio or television or whatever it is you're gonna do for the length of this trip. You're lugging it all, you get it there. Now you get off the plane and you go stand under the wing, literally right next to the engine, right next to the engine of the 747 and there's usually shade there as well, which is meaningful when you're out on the tarmac uh, in a Washington, D.C. summer, you know? (laughs) And then you wait for the helicopters to land from the White House, and then the President arrives. Now, um, I I will tell you what typically happened in my years covering uh, Bush and then Obama is they'd get off the helicopter, they'd take about 10 steps, they'd salute the Marine, you know, they'd walk to the front of the steps, coming down from the front of Air Force One. Uh, as an aside, I should say, the president boards in that great door up the steps to the front. The rest of us board in the back by the tail. So, but that's okay. He's, I, he's earned that right to, <laughs> to have that entrance. Uh, anyway, so, that, you know, Obama, Bush, they would come, they would get to the foot of the steps. There's a red carpet there all the time. There's just always a red carpet there. And, uh, and there are also limos there in case they need to throw them in their limo and get them out of there fast because something's happening. The, the limos are always nearby. Uh, there's, uh, there's an officer at the bottom of the steps. He salutes them, right hand, goes up the steps on the plane, then we board the back of the plane. We're barely in our seats, and the plane is moving and takes off. Uh, sometimes we're airborne before we're even in our seats, which is kind of... Crazy, a crazy thing to get used to, mm-hmm. you know. Taking off. Here's here's what Trump does because uh, I've been on the plane with Trump. I don't know half a dozen times or so. And again, this is a guy who has canceled daily press conferences. So his 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 new press secretary. I don't know how many weeks she's been in in that job, but it's been it's probably been months by now. Maybe somebody knows better than I do. She has yet to hold a briefing. She has yet to hold a press briefing. But Trump can't resist talking to the press. So, 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 so he will do this, he'll get off the chopper or, or get out of the limo you know, after the event he's been at and you know, he'll do all the salute thing and he'll walk toward the steps, he'll see us all under the wing and he'll look at us and he'll wave, he'll hesitate for a minute and he comes over. And he'll hold court under the wing for 15 or 20 minutes, and you can ask him anything, you know, and sometimes his answers like include anything. I mean, I was, I was with him once and he announced a new tax cut plan that was coming and they're working hard and they're very close. None of his staff knew about it. None of his staff <laughs> had any idea about it, but you know, he, he laid it all out for us <laughs> and um, sure enough, nothing came of it. It was just kind of, you know. So do you but, all
0: go and report on just happened
1: uh, yeah I mean you're about to take off so you can't necessarily do it instantly but you're you're calling your office fast and the nice thing is whenever the president speaks somewhere there's a live feed of it there's a camera on right. the ground that's not jumping on the plane right that gives the world a live feed so you get on the plane and you have a conversation with your editors and sometimes the conversation is did you know about the tax cut? Where'd that come from? Is he even talking about that? You know, or, or whatever it is. I mean, that, that will happen. But then, and I guess the point of my story is he, he'll do that and it, that was not completely unheard of in the days of Bush and Obama from my prior experience. But that, that sort of thing might happen like once every two years, right? And now it happens a lot. I'm not gonna say it happens every time, and I'm not gonna say it happens half the time, but it happens a lot, right? And then, something happens that had never, ever, ever happened in my 10 years covering those those other presidents. Uh, he'll, you know, uh, he'll he'll be under the wing, and he'll be talking to you, and then he'll say, okay, I gotta go, you gotta go, we all gotta go, we got the next, you know, and he, he says, I'll see you guys on the plane. And that just kinda sounds like a rhetorical thing to say. See you on the plane, have a good flight, you know? So he goes up the front steps, we go up the back steps, and then before the plane is even, you know, reached cruising altitude, he's back in the doorway of the press cabin. (laughs) Talking more. (laughs) And this time it's, uh, this time maybe the press secretary will say, this is all off the record, you know? And then if it's off the record, then we as reporters, I mean, we have to agree to that, right? So we have to decide if we're going to accept that or not. And usually there's like some negotiation that ensues and hopefully what you can do is either get it on the record or at least get it on background. And you know the difference between off the record and on background. Off the record is you can't use it, but you can like take the information and try to verify it elsewhere. But you can't use it and you can't say, you know, somebody said to me off the record. That's not That's not how off the record works. You can't use it unless you can verify it elsewhere. But on background means you can use this, you can even use quotes, but you just can't identify who's saying it. I mean, sometimes you'll have a background discussion with the President of the United States and they'll say, identify me as a senior administration official. Really? It's like, well, really, I guess, I guess. <laughs> you know, you think, <laughs> you know, but that's, but those are the rules and it's like, and everybody's got to agree. So, so usually what happens is there's some arrangement that's made and he stays and and, and now I'm talking specifically about, about President Trump and then he'll continue his discussion under whatever the new rules of your discussion are and he will do something that, uh, I mean, I don't think it'll, it'll surprise people, but as he's talking about something, he'll point to you. And he'll, he'll like, as an aside, say, you've heard that, right? Or you know what I mean, right? And he's like kind of pulling you in to the story, like, uh, like you, you agree with him. And he like wants you to nod. So you have to be, like, very careful, like, never to nod. <laughs> or if you nod, nod, or if you say something, you go, no, I don't know that, but continue. You know, you have to, like, be careful, because what you don't want is for him to be talking to Fox News or somebody, whatever, the next day. He can, like, tweet about it. it. He could tweet about it, and he could. He's never tweeted about me, but he could, like, put your name in and say so-and-so of such-and-such news organization agrees with me when I say, you know, because... You didn't, like, push back in that moment when he tried to pull you in on the plane. But, 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 the, but the, here's, here's the dilemma for reporters, and I guess it's part of a bigger discussion. It's, we always complained about not getting any access to Obama and Bush. I mean, they both went months and months and months and months and months without having press conferences. Access to him isn't a problem. It can it can happen multiple times a day for days on end. Now you said Bush and Obama
0: did not ever come where the press corps was on Air Force One, but Trump, Trump would. Always but does. those guys did. Yeah. Those other presidents did not.
1: Right. So and again, I can only speak speak from personal experience. Right. But I was on that plane a lot. You know, with with Bush and Obama, and I never once saw either either of them darken the door of the press cabin of Air Force One just to come back and hang out with us, or, or to chat with us, because you know it, they, they didn't want to come on to hang out with us. Uh, you know? and, and it's not that we didn't ask, it just it wasn't part of their routine, and they were more the norm. Uh, Bill Clinton had a habit of coming back, especially on long trips, but not nearly as much as Trump does. Trump does. I mean, Trump, Trump just wants to be having that exchange, he wants to always be pleading his case, Not pleading his case, stating his case and making his case, you know. So that's Air Force One.
0: My thanks to Don Gagne, part two of my conversation with him in which we talk about his travels with President Obama and being at the White House on 9-11 is available now. The Essential Conversations series is a production of Detroit's public radio station WDET and supported by ELS Studio 3D. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll listen to other episodes in this series. Production provided by Rowan Nemisto and original music by Brett Lucas. I'm Andalisi. Thanks so much for listening.